Section 21 of the Cambridge Modern History, Volume 2, The Reformation. Recording by Piotr Nater. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 6. Social Revolution and Catholic Reaction in Germany by A. F. Pollard. Part 2. No less heterogeneous than the factors of which the revolutionary horde was composed were the ideas and motives by which it was moved. There was many a private and local grudge as well as class and common grievances. In Salzburg the archbishop had retained feudal privileges from which most German cities were free. In the Austrian duchies there was a German national feeling against the repressive rule of Ferdinand's Spanish ministers. Religious persecution helped the revolt at Brixen, for Strauss and Urbanus Regius had there made many converts to Luther's gospel. Others complained of the tyranny of mine owners like the Fuggers and other capitalist rings, and in not a few districts the rising assumed the character of a Judenhetze. The peasants all over Germany were animated mainly by the desire to redress agrarian grievances, but hatred of prelatical wealth and privilege and of the voracious territorial power of princes was a bond which united merchants and knights peasants and artisans in a common hostility gradually too the development of the movement led to the production of various manifestos or rather crude suggestions for the establishment of a new political and social organization some of them were foreshadowed in a scheme put forward by Eberlin in 1521, which may not, however, have been more seriously intended than Sir Thomas More's Utopia. Its pervading principle was that of popular election. Each village was to choose a gentleman as its magistrate. Two hundred chief places were to select a knight for their bailiff. Each ten bailiwicks were to be organized under a city and each ten cities under a duke or prince. One of the princes was to be elected king, but he, like every subordinate officer, was to be guided by an elected council. In this scheme, town was throughout subordinate to country. Half the members of the councils were to be peasants and half nobles, and agriculture was pronounced the noblest means of sustenance. Capitalist organizations were abolished, the importation of wine and cloth was forbidden, and that of corn only conceded in time of scarcity, and the price of wine and bread was to be fixed. Only articles of real utility were to be manufactured, and every form of luxury was to be suppressed. Drastic measures were proposed against vice, and drunkards and adulterers were to be punished with death. All children were to be taught Latin, Greek, Hebrew, astronomy, and medicine. This utopian scheme was too fanciful even for the most imaginative peasant leaders, but their proposals grew rapidly more extravagant. The local demand for the abolition of seigneurial rights gave place to universal ideas of liberty, fraternity, equality, and it is scarcely an exaggeration to say that the German peasants in 1525 anticipated most of the French ideas of 1789. The twelve articles of the Elsass peasants went beyond the originals of Memmingen in demanding not only the popular election of pastors, but of all officials, and the right of the people to repudiate or recognize princely authority. 
so too the peasants parliament at meran in the tyrol insisted that all jurisdictions should be exercised by persons chosen by the community it was perhaps hostility to the princes rather than perception of national needs that prompted the agitation for the reduction of all princes to the status of lieutenants of the emperor who was to be recognized as the one and only sovereign ruler but the conception of a democratic empire had taken strong hold of the popular imagination hippler and weigand two of the clearest thinkers of the revolution suggested writing to charles and representing the movement as aimed at two objects dear to his heart the reformation of his church and the subjection of the princes to the obedience to the emperor they no less than the english preferred a popular despotism to feudal anarchy even the conservative swabians desired the abolition of a number of petty intermediate jurisdictions and in more radical districts the proposed vindication of the emperor's power was coupled with the condition that it was to be wielded in the people's interest the kaiser was to be the minister and his subjects the sovereign authority between this ruler and his people there were to be no intervening grades of society equality was an essential condition of the new order of things nobles like the counts of hohenlohe and henneberg who swore through fear the oath imposed by the rebels were required to dismantle their castles to live in houses like peasants and burghers to eat the same food and wear the same dress they were even forbidden to ride on horseback because it raised them above their fellows except he became as a peasant the noble could not enter the kingdom of brotherly love who it was asked made the first noble and had not a peasant five fingers to his hand like a prince still more attractive than the proposed equality of social standing was the suggested equality of worldly goods and though in the latter case the ideal no doubt was that of levelling up and not of levelling down it was declared enough for any man to possess two thousand crowns it might well be inferred even if it had not been stated by the peasants themselves that they derived these ideas from teachers in towns and it was the cooperation of the town proletariat which made the revolt so formidable especially in franconia and thuringia a civic counterpart of eberlin's peasant utopia was supplied by a political pamphlet entitled the needs of the german nation or the reformation of frederick the third as in the case of the twelve articles of memmingen the principle of christian liberty was to be the basis of new organization but it was here applied specifically to the conditions of the poorer classes in towns tolls dues and especially indirect taxes should be abolished the capital of individual merchants and of companies was to be limited to ten thousand crowns the coinage weights and measures were to be reduced to a uniform standard the roman civil and canon law to be abolished ecclesiastical property to be confiscated and clerical participation in secular trades against which several acts of the english reformation parliament were directed to be prohibited some of these grievances especially those against the church were common to rich and poor alike but socialistic and communistic ideas naturally tended to divide every town and city into two parties and the struggle resolved itself into one between the commune representing the poor and the council representing the well-to-do this contest was fought out in most of the towns in germany 
and its result determined the amount of sympathy with which each individual town regarded the peasants' cause. But nowhere do the cities appear to have taken an active part against the revolution, for they all felt that the princes threatened them as much as they did the peasants. Waldshut and Memmingen from the first were friendly. Zurich rendered active assistance, and there was a prevalent fear that the towns of Switzerland and Swabia would unite in support of the movement. The strength shown by the peasants exercised a powerful influence over the intramural struggle of commune and council, and in many of the smaller towns and cities the commune gained the upper hand. Such was the case at Heilbronn, at Rothenburg, where Karlstadt had been active, and at Würzburg. At Frankfurt, the proletariat formed an organization which they declared to be council, burgomaster, pope, and emperor all rolled into one, and most of the small cities opened their gates to the peasants, either because they felt unable to stand a siege, or because the commune was relatively stronger in the smaller than in the bigger cities. The latter were by no means unaffected by the general ferment, but their agitations were less directly favorable to the peasants. In several, such as Strasbourg, there were iconoclastic riots. In Catholic cities like Mainz, Cologne, and Ratisbon, the citizens demanded the abolition of the council's financial control, the suppression of indirect taxation, and the extirpation of clerical privilege. In others, again, their object was merely to free themselves from the feudal control of their lords, while in Bamberg and Speyer they were willing to admit the lordship of the bishops, but demanded the secularization of their property. In one form or another, the spirit of rebellion pervaded the cities from Brixen to Binster and Osnabrück, and from Strasbourg to Stralsund and Danzig. The most extreme embodiment of the revolutionary spirit was found in Thomas Münzer, to whose influence the whole movement has sometimes been ascribed. After his expulsion from Zwickau, he fled to Prague, where he announced his intention of following the example of Hus. His views, however, resembled more closely those of the extreme Hussite sect known as Taborites, and their proximity to Bohemia may explain the reception which the Thuringian cities of Alstedt and Mülhausen accorded to Minzer's ideas. At Alstedt his success was great both among the townsfolk and the peasants. Here he was established as a preacher and married a wife. Here he preached his theocratic doctrines, which culminated in the assertion that the godless had no right to live, but should be exterminated by the sword of the elect. He also developed communistic views, and maintained that lords who withheld from the community the fish in the water, fowl of the air, and produce of the soil, were breaking the commandment not to steal. Property, in fact, though it was left to a more modern communist to point the epigram, was theft. The elector Frederick would have tolerated even this doctrine, but his brother, Duke John, and his cousin, Duke George, secured in July 1524 Münzer's expulsion from Alstedt. He found an asylum in the imperial city of Mülhausen, where a runaway monk, Heinrich Pfeiffer, had already raised the small trades against the aristocratic council. But two months later, the council expelled them both, and in September, Münzer began a missionary tour through southwestern Germany. Its effects were probably much slighter than has usually been supposed, for the revolt in Stullingen had begun before Münzer started, and his extreme views were not adopted anywhere except at Mülhausen and in its vicinity. 
he returned thither about February, 1525, and by March 17 he and Pfeiffer had overthrown the Council and established a communistic theocracy, an experiment which allured the peasantry of the adjacent districts into attempts at imitation. Even Erfurt was for a time in the hands of insurgents, and the Counts of Hohenstein were forced to join their ranks. Minzer failed, however, to raise the people of Mansfeld, and there was considerable friction between him and Pfeiffer, whose objects seem to have been confined to consolidating the power of the guilds within the walls of Mülhausen. Minzer's strength lay in the peasants outside, and when Philip of Hesse, with the Dukes of Brunswick and Saxony, advanced to crush the revolt, he established his camp at Frankenhausen, some miles from Mülhausen, while Pfeiffer remained within the city. Divisions were also rife in the other insurgent bands. The more statesmanlike of the leaders endeavoured to restrain the peasants' excesses and to secure cooperation from other classes, while the extremists, either following the bent of their nature or deliberately counting on the effects of terror, had recourse to violent measures. The worst of their deeds was the massacre of Weinsberg, which took place on April 17th, and for which the ruffian Jeklein Rohrbach was mainly responsible. In an attempt to join hands with the Swabian peasants, a contingent of the Franconian army, commanded by Metzler, attacked Weinsberg, a town not far from Heilbronn, held by Count Ludwig von Helfenstein. Helfenstein had distinguished himself by his defence of Stuttgart against Duke Ulrich of Württemberg, and by his rigorous measures against such rebels as fell into his power. When a handful of peasants appeared before Weinsberg and demanded admission, the court made a sortie and cut them all down. This roused their comrades to fury. Weinsberg was stormed by Rohrbach, and no quarter was given until Metzler arrived on the scene and stopped the slaughter. He granted Rohrbach, however, custody of the prisoners, consisting of Halfenstein and seventeen other knights, and against Metzler's orders, and without his knowledge, the Count and his fellow prisoners were early next morning made to run the gauntlet of peasants' daggers before the eyes of the Countess, a natural daughter of the Emperor Maximilian. These bloody reprisals were not typical of the revolt. They were the work of an extreme section, led by a man who was little better than a criminal, and they were generally repudiated by the other insurgent bands. The Württemberg peasants, under Feuerbacher, disclaimed all connection with the Weinsbergers, as the proprietors of the massacre came to be called, and the deed hastened, if it did not cause, a division among the revolutionary ranks. Goetz von Berlichingen, Wendel Hippler, and Metzler, all men of comparative moderation, were chosen leaders of the insurgents from the Odenwald and the surrounding districts and they endeavoured, on the one hand, to introduce more discipline among the peasants, and on the other to moderate their demands. It was proposed that the twelve articles should be reduced to a declaration that the peasants would be satisfied with the immediate abolition of serfdom, of the lesser tithes, and of death dues, and would concede the performance of other services pending a definite settlement which was to be reached at a congress at Heilbronn. By these concessions, and the proposal that temporal princes should be compensated out of the wealth of the clergy for their loss of feudal dues, Hippler and Weigand hoped to conciliate some at least of the princes, and it was probably with this end in view that the main attack of the rebels was directed against the Bishop of Würzburg. 
A violent opposition to these suggestions was offered by the extremists. Their supporters were threatened with death, and Feuerbacher was deposed from the command of the Württemberg contingent. A like difficulty was experienced in the effort to induce military subordination. Believers in the equality of men held it as an axiom that no one was better than another, and they demanded that no military measures should be taken without the previous consent of the whole force. Rohrbach and his friends separated from the main body, probably on the account of the selection of Berlichingen as commander, and of the moderate proposals of Hitler, and pursued an independent career of useless pillage. But while this violence disgusted many sympathizers with the movement, its immediate effect was to terrorize the Franconian nobles. Scores of them joined the Evangelical Brotherhood, and handed over their artillery and munitions of war. Count William of Henneberg followed their example, and the abbots of Hersfeld and Fulda, the bishops of Bamberg and Speyer, the coadjutor of the bishop of Würzburg, and Margrave Casimir of Brandenburg, were compelled to sign the modified twelve articles or to make similar concessions nearly the whole of franconia was now in the rebels hands and towards the end of april they began to concentrate on würzburg whose bishop was also duke of franconia and the most powerful prince in the circle the city offered little resistance and the bishop fled to his castle on the neighbouring frauenberg this was an almost impregnable fortress and the attempt to capture it locked up the greatest mass of the peasants' forces during the crucial month of the revolution. It might have been taken or induced to surrender, but for defects in the organization of the besieging army. There was little subordination to the leaders or unity in their councils. Some were in favor of offering terms, but Gea opposed so lukewarm a measure. The peasants obtained a fresh accession of strength, by the formal entry of Rothenburg into the Evangelical Brotherhood on May the 14th. But on the following night, during the absence of their ablest commanders, the besiegers made an attempt to storm the castle, which was repulsed with considerable loss. Irretrievable disasters were meanwhile overtaking the peasants in other quarters of Germany. On the day after the failure to storm the Frauenburg was fought the Battle of Frankenhausen, which put an end to the revolt in Thuringia. The dominions of Philip of Hesse had been less affected by the movement than those of his neighbours, mainly because his government had been less oppressive, and though there were disturbances, his readiness to make concessions soon pacified them, and he was able to come to the assistance of less fortunate princes. Joining forces with the Dukes of Brunswick and Duke John of Saxony, who succeeded his brother Frederick as elector of Saxony on May 5, Philip attacked Mincer at Frankenhausen on the 15th. According to Melanchthon, whose diatribe against Mincer has been usually accepted as the chief authority for the battle, the prophet guaranteed his followers immunity from the enemy's bullets, and they stood still singing hymns as the princess's onslaught commenced. But their inaction seems also to have been due, in part at least, to the agitation of some of the insurgents for surrender. In any case, there was scarcely a show of resistance. A brief cannonade demolished the line of wagons, which they had, after the fashion of the Hussites, drawn up for their defence, and a few minutes later the whole force was in flight. Münzer himself was captured, and after torture and imprisonment wrote a letter, the genuineness of which has been doubted, admitting his errors and the justice of his condemnation to death. 
Pfeiffer and his party in Mülhausen were now helpless, and their appeals to the Franconian insurgents, which fell upon deaf ears, would in any case have been unavailing. On the 24th, Pfeiffer escaped from the city, which thereupon surrendered. He was overtaken near Eisenach, and met his inevitable fate with more courage than Münzer had shown. A like measure was meted out to the Burgomaster, Mülhausen itself was deprived of its privileges as a free imperial city, and the revolt was easily suppressed at Erfurt and in other Thuringian districts. The peasants had been crushed in the north, and they fared as ill in the south. Truxes, after his truce with the Donauried, the Algau, and the Lake contingents, had turned in the last week in April against the Black Forest bands, when he was ordered by the Swabian League to march to the relief of Württemberg, and so prevent a junction between the Franconian and Swabian rebels. On May 12th he came upon the peasants strongly entrenched on marshy grounds near Büblingen. By means of an understanding with some of the leading burghers, the gates of the town were opened, and Truxes was enabled to plant artillery on the castle walls, whence it commanded the peasants' entrenchments. Compelled thus to come out into the open, they were cut to pieces by cavalry, though with a courage which the peasants had not hitherto displayed, the Württemberg band prolonged its resistance for nearly four hours. Weisberg next fell into Truxesse's hands, and was burned to the ground, and Rohrbach was slowly roasted to death. Truxesse's approach spread consternation in the camp at Würzburg. After the failure to storm the Frauenberg, Götz von Berlichingen deserted the peasants' cause, and about a fourth of his men returned to their homes. The remainder were detached from the camp at Würzburg to intercept Truxes. They met him on June 2nd at Königshofen, and suffered a defeat almost as disastrous as that at Böblingen. Truxes next fell upon Florian Geyer and his black band, who made a stubborn defence at Ingolstadt, but were outnumbered, and most of them slain. Geyer escaped for the time, but met his death, by fair means or foul, shortly afterwards, at the hands of Wilhelm von Grumbach. Truxes could now march on Würzburg without fear of molestation. The outskirts were reached on June 5th, and the leaders of the old city council entered into communication with the approaching enemy. They conceded practically all the reactionary demands, but represented to the citizens that they had made the best terms they could, and on June 8th, Truxes and the princes rode into the city without opposition. The surrender of Würzburg carried with it the relief of the hard-pressed castle of Frauenberg, and the neck of the rebellion being thus broken, its life in other parts gradually flickered out. Rothenburg was captured by Margrave Casimir on June 28th, but Karlstadt and several other revolutionary leaders escaped. Memmingen was taken by stratagem, and few of the cities showed any disposition to resist. The movement in Elsass had been suppressed by Duke Antony of Lorraine with the help of foreign mercenaries before the end of May, and by July the only districts in which large forces of the peasants remained in arms were the Algau, Salzburg, and Ferdinand's duchies. Truxes, having crushed the revolt in Franconia, returned to complete the work which had been interrupted in Upper Swabia. With the aid of George von Frunzberg, who had returned from Italy, and by means of treachery in the peasant ranks, he dispersed two of the Algau bands on July 22nd, and compelled a third to surrender on the banks of the Luibas. 
A week before Count Felix von Werdenberg had defeated the Hegau contingent at Hilzingen, relieved Radolzfeld, and beheaded Hans Müller of Bülgenbach. In the Austrian territories, and in Salzburg, however, the revolution continued active throughout the winter and following spring. Waldshut, which had risen against Ferdinand's religious persecution before the outbreak of the Peasants' War, held out until December 12, 1525. The revolt in Salzburg was indirectly encouraged by the jealousy existing between its archbishop and the dukes of Bavaria, and by a scheme which Ferdinand entertained of dividing the archbishop's lands between the two dukes and himself. The archduke had in June 1525 temporarily pacified the Tyrolese peasantry by promising a complete amnesty and granting some substantial redress of their agrarian and even of their ecclesiastical grievances. But Michael Geismayer and others, who aimed at a political revolution, were not satisfied, and Geismayer fled to Switzerland, where he received promises of support from Francis I and other enemies of the Habsburgs. Early in 1526 he returned to the attack, and in May lay siege to Radstadt. At Schladming, some fifteen miles to the east of Radstadt, the peasants defeated Dietrichstein, and for some months defied the Austrian government. Geismayer inflicted two reverses upon the forces sent to relieve Radstadt, but was unable permanently to resist the increasing contingents dispatched against him by the Swabian League and the Austrian government. In July he was compelled to raise the siege, and fled to Italy, where he was murdered in 1528 by two Spaniards, who received for their deed the price put by the government on Geismayer's head. The Austrian duchies were one of the few districts in which the revolt resulted in an amelioration of the lot of the peasants. Margrave Philip of Baden, whose humanity was recognized on all sides, pursued a similar policy, and the Landgrave of Hesse also made some concessions. But as a rule, the suppression of the movement was marked by appalling atrocities. On May 27th, Leonard of Eck, the Bavarian Chancellor, reports that Duke Anthony of Lorraine alone had already destroyed 20,000 peasants in Elsass, and for the whole of Germany, a moderate estimate puts the number of victims at a 100,000. The only consideration that restrained the victors appears to have been the fear that, unless they held their hand, they would have no one left to render them service. If all the peasants are killed, wrote Margrave George to his brother Casimir, where shall we get other peasants to make provision for us? Casimir stood in need of the exhortation. At Kitzingen, near Würzburg, he put out the eyes of fifty-nine townsfolk, and forbade the rest under severe penalties to offer them medical or other assistance. When the massacre of eighteen knights at Weinsberg is adduced as proof that the peasants were savages, one may well ask what stage of civilization had been reached by German princes. The effects of this failure to deal with the peasants' grievances, except by methods of brutal oppression, cannot be estimated with any exactitude but its effects were no doubt enduring and disastrous. The Diet of Augsburg, in 1525, attempted to mitigate the ferocity of the lords towards their subjects, but the effort did not produce much result, and to the end of the 18th century the German peasantry remained the most wretched in Europe. Serfdom lingered there longer than in any other civilized country save Russia and the mass of the people were effectively shut out from the sphere of political action. 
The beginnings of democracy were crushed in the cities, the knights and then the peasants were beaten down, and only the territorial power of the princes profited. The misery of the mass of her people must be reckoned as one of the causes of the national weakness and intellectual sterility which marked Germany during the latter part of the 16th century. The religious lead which she had given to Europe passed into other hands, and the literary awakening which preceded and accompanied the Reformation was followed by slumbers at least as profound as those which had gone before. The difficulty of assigning reasons for the failure of the revolt itself is enhanced by that of determining how far it was really a revolutionary movement and how far reactionary. Was it the last and greatest of the medieval peasant revolts, or was it a premature birth of modern democracy? It was probably a combination of both. The hardships of the peasants and town proletariat were undoubtedly aggravated by the economic revolution, the substitution of a world market for local markets, the consequent growth of capitalism and of the relative poverty of the poorest classes, and in so far as they saw no remedy except in a return to the worn-out medieval system, their objects were reactionary, and would have failed ultimately even if they had achieved a temporary success. On the other hand, the ideas which their leaders developed during the course of the movement, such as the abolition of serfdom, the participation of peasants in politics, the universal application of the principle of election, were undeniably revolutionary and premature. Many of these ideas have been since successfully put into practice, but in 1525 the classes which formulated them had not acquired the faculties necessary for the proper exercise of political power, and the movement was an abortion. The effect of its suppression upon the religious development of Germany was nonetheless disastrous. In its religious aspect, the peasants' revolt was an appeal of the poor and oppressed to divine justice against the oppressor. They had eagerly applied to their lords the biblical anathemas against the rich, and interpreted the beatitudes as a promise of redress for the wrongs of the poor. They were naturally unconvinced by Luther's declarations that the gospel only guaranteed a spiritual and not a temporal emancipation, and that spiritual liberty was the only kind of freedom to which they had a right. They felt that such a doctrine might suit Luther and his kingly and bourgeois supporters who already enjoyed an excessive temporal franchise, but that in certain depths of material misery the cultivation of spiritual and moral welfare was impossible. It was a counsel of perfection to advise them to be content with spiritual solace when they complained that they could not feed their bodies. They did not regard poverty as compatible with the divine justice to which they appealed, and when their appeal was met by the slaughter of a hundred thousand of their numbers, their faith in the new gospel received a fatal blow. Their aspirations, which had been so vividly expressed in the popular literature of the last five years, were turned into despair, and they relapsed into a state of mind which was not far removed from materialistic atheism. Who knows, they asked, what God is, or whether there is a God? And the minor questions at issue between Luther and the Pope they viewed with profound indifference. Such was the result of the peasants' revolt and of Luther's intervention. His conduct will always remain a matter of controversy, because its interpretation depends not so much upon what he said, 
or what left unsaid, as upon the respective emphasis to be laid on the various things he said, and on the meaning his words were likely to convey to his readers. His first tract on the subject, written and published in the early days of the movement, distributed blame with an impartial but lavish hand. He could not countenance the use of force, but many of the peasants' demands were undeniably just, and their revolt was the vengeance of God for the princess's sins. Both parties could, and no doubt did, interpret this as a pronouncement in their favour. And indeed, stripped of its theology, violence, and rhetoric, the tract was a sensible and accurate diagnosis of the case. But although the princess may have deserved his strictures, a prudent man who really believed the revolt to be evil would have refrained from such attacks at that moment. Luther, however, could not resist the temptation to attribute the ruin which threatened the princes to their stiff-necked rejection of Lutheran dogma, and his invectives poured oil on the flames of the revolt. Its rapid progress filled him with genuine terror, and it is probably unjust to ascribe his second tract merely to a desire to be found on the side of the big battalions. It appeared in the middle of May 1525, possibly before the news of any great defeats inflicted on the insurgent bands had reached him, and when it would have required more than Luther's foresight to predict their speedy collapse. Yet terror, and his proximity to Thuringia, the scene of the most violent and dangerous form of the revolt, while they may palliate, cannot excuse Luther's efforts to rival the brutal ferocity of Münzer's doctrines. He must have known that the princess's victory, if it came at all, would be bloody enough without his exhortation to kill and slay the peasants like mad dogs, and without his promise of heaven to those who fell in the holy work. His sympathy with the masses seems to have been limited to those occasions when he saw in them a useful weapon to hold over the heads of his enemies. He once lamented that refractory servants could no longer be treated like other cattle, as in the days of the patriarchs, and he joined with Melanchthon and Spalatin in removing the scruples of a Saxon noble with regard to the burdens his tenants bore. The ass will have blows, he said, and the people will be ruled by force. And he was not free from the upstart's contempt from the class from which he sprang. His followers echoed his sentiments. Melanchthon thought even serfdom too mild for stubborn folk like the Germans, and maintained that the master's right of punishment and the servant's duty of submission should both be unlimited. It was little wonder that the organizers of the Lutheran church afterwards found the peasants deaf to their exhortations, or that Melanchthon was once constrained to admit that the people abhorred himself and his fellow divines. End of section 21